Well, good morning. We're going to be doing something a little bit different this morning in that we're going to be hearing stories from three women. I actually think there's something really powerful in telling stories and hearing stories as well. Often as we hear other people's stories, we identify with parts of our own. And actually, I just think as we listen, we, we just learn and grow. You know, in a room this size, we, um, we all arrive, don't we, looking pretty good, often with smiles on our faces. But I often think about all the different life experiences that kind of runs behind each one of us, the life stages we're at, and all that's going on in our lives. Be behind each one of us lies a story. What's your story? I'm guessing it will involve or have involved times of great joy, sadness, challenge, achievement, disappointment, certainly loss, and much more. The truth is life is full of unknowns, and often we have more questions than answers. But for those of us that have decided to follow Jesus, we get to walk through this life and do life through a personal day-to-day -day relationship with him. It is an incredible thing. It's often through the challenges and difficulties that life throws at us that we really get to know his presence and encounter Jesus and grow in our faith. That's certainly been my experience and many others here in this room. There's a great couple of verses in the Bible in a book called Romans, and I'm reading from a, a translation called The Message, which I love, and it puts it like this, the thing we're called to do. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Jesus absolutely loves to be involved in our lives and so relevant for today. He loves to be involved in the big things, but also the little things, like that passage says, the eating, the sleeping. The stories we're going to hear today, this morning, from three, three women have done exactly that, just given their everyday, ordinary lives to Jesus. And it's been an incredible journey each of them have been on. It takes real courage to stand up here and be real and vulnerable. So please give a huge round of applause for our first woman, Jackie. Hello, um, my name's Jackie Howard and I'm a recovering alcoholic and I've been sober for 14 years this New Year's Eve. Um, my recovery depends on a day at a time. It's a daily reprieve as I put my trust in God under the tools that I've found um, aid my recovery. People often say to me, um, were you born an alcoholic? And the answer to that is, I, I don't know. But what I do know, there were lots of conditions surrounding my life that were perfect conditions for producing someone with an addictive personality. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit about my life to to, to help you understand where, where I've come from and how I got to that point in my life. Um, genetically, my natural father was a chronic alcoholic and he died at the age of 42, but I never knew him. 
Um, I was taken from my mother by my grandparents till I was three because of the absolute chaos in the household. And I was abandoned frequently in the evening as a baby, so my grandparents just took me one night for my own protection. At the age of three, my mum wanted me back because she remarried. That marriage was turbulent. All I can remember of family life was um, fighting, physical fighting, which I frequently got involved in as a young child trying to protect my mother. Knives, pokers, um, screaming, shouting, and a lot of drinking going on. Um, I was well cared for in other ways, but drinking caused a lot of chaos in our household. Consequently, my main kind of emotions connected to family life were fear, um, not feeling safe and insecurity. And I needed comfort. I needed escape and I needed a way out. And that way out for me as a little child was through the life of my dolls, which I retreated into this secret life of dolls all the time. I was an only child till I was 14. So they were my relationships. Um, sugar. I ate copious amounts of sweets and chocolates, much more than I think than any, any other child because it made me feel a, a sense of well-being and, and okay. And I think that was the seeds um, of my addiction um, with alcohol, the sugar addiction. Um, and the other thing was Jesus. Um, I didn't even have to be told about Jesus. He was my invisible friend in the midst of fear and insecurity of being left time and time on my own when my parents went out drinking. As a young child of seven or eight, I would just cry out to my invisible friend, as I called him, and say, oh, please be with me, when I could hear the strange noises at night, uh, and so on. Um, I was really very frightened as a child. But Jesus, I discovered, was there with me and for me, and he always has been. In fact, he has pursued me all my life. Um, the early encounter with alcohol was when I was about seven. Because my parents drank a lot, they let me try alcohol, and I just could not believe the sense of well-being and that cosy, fuzzy feeling that alcohol gave me. And I loved it from the start. It was a love affair starting from, from the start, seven years old. And it wasn't long before I asked if I could try pink ladies and cherry bees with you might some of you are older those crinkly pink tops and bright red shiny tops really attracted me and I used to be allowed to have sips of that snowballs and goodness knows what and I absolutely loved it it took away any kind of negative feelings I was feeling so right from an early start I realized alcohol changed my feelings through adolescence I wouldn't say it was a major problem. I just drank a lot when I was out with my friends, but I worked hard at school, I was popular, and um, life was okay then. I felt in control of my life, despite what was going on at home, and the relationship I had with good friends at school helped a lot. And my relationship with God was growing all the time, but there was always this pull between, between God, my love affair with God, and my love affair with, with the world and um, this relationship with alcohol. Um, I went on to university and it's safe to say that there I just entered into another world of drugs. The alcohol didn't 
um, it wasn't so important as the drugs. And I found LSD. And every weekend, me and my partner then would plan to spend the whole weekend tripping and getting completely out of our heads into unreality. And I absolutely loved it because I wasn't here and I was changing my feelings and I was in another place. I just about managed to get my degree. I don't know how that was because I was completely um, wasting a lot of my time in the drug culture. And I was kind of hippie with henna feet and walking around with no shoes on, this kind of thing. And I felt a real sense of belonging with that culture and acceptance. It fed all those things that this little child needed deep within. And the relationship I got involved with, which wasn't right for me, also fed the need to be loved, the need to feel secure, all of those things. Um, it was in the late 70s, I met my husband, Ronnie, and he'll understand what I'm saying here. It really ignited this alcohol thing, really did. Whereas it had been kept reasonably in control during adolescence, meeting him, he was, he was a drinker, he, he was an addict, he'd come out of rehab, and really it brought the worst and the best out of us. We fell passionately in love and always have been. We connected on a really deep level, but the drinking was a nightmare. And uh, it led to just the same kind of thing that, that, that my mum and dad really, to some extent, lots and lots of conflict and, and terrible upheaval. Um, because we were both Christians, um, you know, this is the awful thing, that all this is going on. We tend to think we walk a straight line with our Christianity. But you see, these things have great holds on us. And um, we knew it was wrong. We knew how much we were drinking was wrong. And yet, we wanted to do it. And so we were pulled that way all the time. It wasn't until we got married um, and decided to have children that we thought, one, we wanted to please God and we needed to stop doing what we were doing. We didn't in any way think we were alcoholics. We just thought we drank too much. Um, and we didn't want to repeat the same problems as our parents, so we stopped drinking. We got down on our knees one night and prayed and asked God to help us and come into our lives. And we didn't drink again for nine years nearly. Nine years later, we entered the hardest time, well, it was for me, the hardest time of my life during my 40s. There's no mistake about it. I had an early menopause. I had postnatal depression with my third child. There was lots of other different losses. And I remembered what alcohol did for me. And that was my big mistake, I remembered. And with the remembering came back the longings. And with the longings eventually came back the behavior and I took a drink. I didn't think it was a major thing. I thought, well, I've not drank for nine years, so it would be fine now. And it was for a while. We'd have glasses of wine with friends and so on. But the problems within our marriage and so on, um, and my menopause and depression and emptiness, largely from taking drugs, I have to say, grew and grew and grew. And it was indoors drinking was the new thing for me. 
And because you're drinking indoors, you're not measuring it, you're drinking more and more. And I always drank more than I intended to drink. So what started off as two glasses of wine would move to three, would move to four, and before I knew it, the whole bottle of wine had gone. And then following that, as the days and weeks and months went on, not just one bottle of wine, but two bottles of wine. It took time for this to build up, I'd say, 10-year period. But over that 10 years, I then started drinking during the day. I was teaching part-time. I absolutely went for it on the days I wasn't teaching. It resulted in lots of chaos in my life. I smashed my car up at the Galveston roundabout. I lost my license for three years. I was taken to a prison cell. My head teacher had to be informed in case it was in the papers. And the shame and the guilt with which I was living with that time was, was unbearable. And I had no one to talk to because I didn't feel there was anyone in the church I could talk to. I was so ashamed. I thought, they know me as this person who does all these things in church, but behind closed doors, I'm this person, a drunk who can't control their alcohol. I did share with a couple of friends I, I felt safe with, but because they never had problems like mine, they could sympathize, but they didn't really understand. This just went on and on and on, and the need to control, I was unwilling to let the drink go because I didn't see how I could live without it. So all through my prayer journal would be this bargaining with God, Lord, I won't drink on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. This is honestly how it went. I'll only drink on a Friday, Saturday, and I won't drink on a Sunday. And I could never keep to it. I won't drink any spirits anymore. I'll just drink lager. I never could keep to it. it I'd, I'd, I'd keep to it for so long, and then it all went to pot. And so my definition of an alcoholic is someone who really has lost control over their drinking. That's not to say I couldn't have control for a time, because I could. But nevertheless, I couldn't keep to it. And over and over again, the same thing would happen with massive consequences, especially to my boys, my family. And my youngest boy, Ben, actually bore a great brunt of this. It was awful for him, absolutely horrific. Um, I've since written letters to all my boys, and they've been so wonderfully forgiving. So I got to the point of surrender it had to be let go of. I hated the woman I was becoming, and I hated the fact that I couldn't look God in the eye. However, I have to say that I never felt God's condemnation at all through this period. I only ever felt his pursuing love. And I felt he, was, he kept saying to me over and over again, you're worth more than this. Let it go. It's a bit like Lord of the Rings, my precious. I was holding it like that. And God was saying, open your hand and let it go. It'll be all right. You're listening to a lie. I let it go. Ronnie and I joined AA. And I have to say that um, through the honesty we found there and the hope and the fact that we met other people like ourselves, teachers, actors, plumbers, joiners, and so on, all struggling to stay sober, we've been able to stay sober a day at a time um, for the last 14 years, but I had to come to the point of accepting abstinence. You know, it's a bit like that verse in the Bible, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. It is better to enter heaven with one eye. And for me, the drink was this eye that had to be plucked out. And, you know, 
I've not been miserable since I put it down, as I thought. Life has opened up. I have joy today. I have peace today. Um, I'm the power of example today to my own family. Um, I'm able to help in things like the carpenter's arms, power to change, mentoring other young women with alcohol problems, and help to run an AA group here on a Friday for anyone who's interested, and one in the inner city in, in High and Green on a Monday. So, you know, so much to give back. God has used for good what Satan used for harm. What was a curse has become a blessing. And it's all through choice. I made a choice. Choose this day, God said to me, who you will serve. I've chosen life today. And I've been given life and I've been, been given my life back um, a day at a time. But finally, I'm just going to finish now. I just want to say that I wouldn't want you to go away from here and think, oh, you know, it's all hunky-dory. It's an ongoing battle for me with sugar. I'm a binge eater. You know, I've, my weight has gone up four stone than what I am now. Throughout my life, I've been up and down with binge eating. And even now and again now, I still resort to that when I've got nothing else and I just can't stand it. And on that stress, I'll have a load of chocolate. Now, I just tend to see that a lot. I'm a lot more kind to myself now. Life doesn't go in straight lines. I'm not the finished product. And I'm still a person with an addictive personality and get addicted to egg custards, anything I get fixated on. Um, something gets in my head and it won't go away. So the whole thing, I think, has just thrown me onto God, um, the addiction thing, to trust him, to listen to the truth, and his promises and not listen to the lies and, and that negative little voice that's at me all the time. I mean, you know, it is a battle. This is, we're not on a cruise ship, John, when we said we're on a battleship. And it is a battle. It's a battle. But it's a battle I mean business with because I love the woman that I'm becoming. So thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Amazing. Will you please now welcome Hannah? Morning. I've made it over the first obstacle, getting up the steps. That was what I was worried about. Okay, so I'm Hannah, and I'm going to be talking about going through a divorce. Um, talking about divorce as a Christian can sometimes feel quite uncomfortable. And I think that's maybe because we don't think the two things should go together, or perhaps that we don't actually like to acknowledge that they can go together. But that's been the reality for me, and I'd like to share with you my journey through divorce. Okay, so let's rewind. 1989, anyone remember that? Kylie and Jason were topping the charts with Especially For You. The country have mourned the departure of Scott and Charlene from Neighbours. Everyone's wearing denim jackets, stonewashed jeans, and Grolsch bottle tops on their shoes. Yes, thanks, Bross, for that. And I'm 13, and I'm in the church youth group. It was around this time that I made a decision to get to know Jesus and ask him to become the Lord of my life. As I gradually developed my relationship with Jesus, reading the Bible, and learning how to pray, I had a real sense that I had a choice to make. Hormones were racing, the possibilities of boyfriends was rearing its head, and I made a conscious decision to allow God to have control over the boyfriend stuff. I would wait for the right person to come along, someone who loved the Lord like I did. So 
I embarked on my teenage years, and they weren't pretty. Unfortunately, becoming a Christian hadn't magically transformed me into this lovely young person. I was obnoxious, challenging, and headstrong. But through all the typical teenage highs and lows, I knew God had got someone for me, someone I could love and perhaps eventually marry and share my life with. So, fast forward to 1994. One shaved head, many nights at Rock City, and several colours of Doc Martin boots later. A-levels were finished, hooray! A-levels passed, just. And the rest of my life waiting for me. I think I'll have a gap year, I told my parents. Great, go backpacking around Australia, my mum suggested. Or maybe spend a year working in a kibbutz. No, I said, I'm off to Bible college in Sussex. October 1994, mum and dad drove me down to Sussex and deposited me at the college, which was one of the most exciting, challenging and life-changing years I've had. Please remember, I was still only 18. So of course, apart from naturally wanting to get stuck into God, there was also the exciting prospect of boys and Christian ones too. As we spent time getting to know each other in the first couple of weeks, I was drawn to this guy from South Africa, James. It helped, of course, that he was dropped there gorgeous, but his obvious passion for Jesus was what I liked too. We started hanging out, and pretty soon, that was it. We'd fallen in love with each other. We firmly believed that God had brought our lives together at this time, and now, looking back, I still believe the Lord's hand was on us, and he'd blessed our relationship. So, Christmas 1994. Hi, Mum and Dad. I know I haven't seen you since October, but I've met this guy, James, and actually, we're going to get married. How my parents didn't totally freak out, I'll never know. But they were very supportive and welcomed James into our family. And a year almost to the day after our first meeting, we were married. I can honestly say it was a truly special, wonderful day. Everything about the service was planned to praise and thank God for giving us each other and acknowledging that we were dedicating our married life to serving him and following his plan for us. The ethos we felt the Lord had given us was no compromise. Live the Christian life to the full, dare to be different, and dream big. We embraced this, and so began our adventure together, which led to several hectic years. We had an open door policy, so the house was always full of people. We gave what we had to anyone who needed it. We prayed for provision and saw it happen. Working for the church, both at the college and with the youth, kept us busy, and I was expecting our first baby. We didn't have much, but we didn't care because we were living this biblical life, and above all else, we loved each other and loved the Lord. It was us against the world, and we were going to make a difference. Our first daughter, Eden, arrived safely in 1997. Having made the decision to have children early on in our marriage, we knew it'd be fairly tough, but we'd still have plenty of time as they were growing up to enjoy being a family and carry on our adventure with God. 18 months later, when pregnant with our second child, we felt the Lord prompting us to move back to Nottingham. Things quickly fell into place. James found a great job, and we moved in with my family whilst we looked for a house. We settled back into life in Nottingham. Our second daughter, Callie, was born, and we bought our first house, got stuck into church, spent time with the family, and James was doing well in his job. By Christmas 2000, I'd given birth to our third daughter, Zara. Three daughters, all under the age of four, and I was still only 24. It was what we both wanted, but life had suddenly become a whole lot tougher. The first couple of months after Zara was born, I felt fine, if not a little exhausted. But then, it was like hitting a wall. I was permanently shattered. Zara didn't sleep through the night like the other two girls had done at this stage. 
Most days, it was if I was dragging myself through treacle, fed up and angry. But at what? I didn't really understand. It's fine. You've had two girls already. How hard can the third be? You know what you're doing. Look, everyone else can do it. What's wrong with you? Just get on with it. It'll be okay. These were the thoughts constantly going round in my head, but I felt unable to express them to anyone because that would have made me, in my eyes, a failure and a rubbish mum. So I struggled on. Then James found out that the company he was working for was going under, and he didn't know how much longer he would have his job. It's difficult to remember the details of that time because it was like living in a fog. But I know we were losing our connection with each other, failing to invest in us because there was nothing left over after everything else. It was a lonely time, but I thought, heads down, get on with it, it'll be okay. Then, sitting in bed one night, not long after Christmas 2001, James turned to me and said, I don't love you anymore. I was completely and utterly stunned. Yes, things were difficult. I knew we hadn't been getting on, but I still loved James, still wanted to be with him. Obviously, he felt differently. I can't recall much of that night other than creeping downstairs, curling up in a ball and sobbing from the pit of my stomach. I just couldn't believe he meant it. From that moment on, he never again showed any signs of affection towards me or spoke any loving words. Someone had flipped a switch inside him and I was faced with a cold stranger. Within a week, I'd been to the doctors and broken down telling her how I'd been feeling since having Zara, and now my husband was saying he didn't love me. Immediately, she realized I was suffering from postnatal depression. And within two weeks of taking medication, I felt like I'd emerged from that fog. But I thought I was going mad. Why hadn't I realized what had been wrong? Then maybe things between James and I wouldn't have got to this point. I didn't tell anyone what was happening at home. I felt embarrassed and ashamed, hoping miraculously that things would improve. Close friends realized something was wrong, but I couldn't bring myself to articulate it because that would have made it real. So home now meant isolation, loneliness, and a husband sleeping on the floor of our daughter's room. Eventually, after nine months of living like this, James moved out. I didn't fight it because I still hoped it was only short term, but I was absolutely devastated. I was officially a single parent and our girls were only five, three, and one. Added to this, it soon transpired that James had been having an affair with a woman from work. It had been going on for over a year, in which time he had brought this woman into our home, she'd had dinner with us, and waved at me most mornings when she picked up James to give him a lift to work. Faced with this traumatic news, my whole world came crashing down around me. I cried, sobbed and sobbed, and sobbed, not just initially, but pretty much every day for the next three years. Those depths of sadness I've never experienced before, and I really hope I never do again. And I cried out to God. Night after night, I got down on my knees, overwhelmed with grief, and begged God to bring him home. Sometimes I screamed at God, how could he let this happen? We were Christians. He is all-powerful. He could have prevented it, intervened. He could make James come home. But I also knew that I would never survive this without Jesus. I couldn't do it on my own. I didn't have the strength or the courage to face the situation. I needed him now more than ever. Thank goodness I have amazing friends and family 
They listened literally for hours as I poured out all my emotions and analyzed every interaction James had had and I had had. And there were so many emotions every day. Shame was a huge part of how I was feeling. We'd set ourselves up as an example of Christian marriage. How could I face people at church, or anyone for that matter? Failure. I was a failure as a mother, as a wife, as a Christian. If only I'd done this, prayed more, not done that. If only, if only, if only. The grief was all-consuming. I'd lost the man I loved, but he was still out there living a life I no longer was allowed to be part of. And he was still coming in and out of my life because of the children. I used to wish that he'd died. It seemed to me that that would have been easier for me to deal with. And I was grieving for my children too. Their whole life would now be lived in a way that we'd never planned and never wanted for them. They were hurting and I could do nothing to make it better for them. That's probably the most difficult thing for a parent to experience. And I was grieving for the loss of our future together. What about raising our children together? Growing old together? Sharing the intimacies of everyday life together? Our plans, our dreams, all of it, just gone. Rejection. I was useless. Worthless. I must be, because James didn't want me anymore. Anger. How could he do this to me? To the children, how could she do this? How dare she do this? I wanted to kill him, and I definitely wanted to kill her. In fact, I used to sit and think about all the things I could do to hurt her because she was hurting me. One time when James came over to the house, I was washing up, and, I, and we started to argue. I turned to him with a large kitchen knife and screamed that I was going to stab him. You'll be pleased to know that I didn't. But in that moment, I was so angry, I wanted to. I wanted to cause him as much pain as possible so that he'd begin to realize the pain that he was causing me. Betrayal. I spent hours going over the details of our lies before he left, realizing when he'd been lying, wondering, was he with her then? Knowing he'd given himself to someone else emotionally, caring about her more than he did about me, and loving her was actually more of a betrayal than them sleeping together. Fear. How was I going to cope financially? I wasn't working because I was looking after the children. What about the practical stuff? Could I really juggle the house, finances, the children and everything else on my own? Just buying a pint of milk had become a nightmare. Three children strapped in the car, then out of the car and into the buggy, round the shop, which is no mean feat with a double pushchair, back into the car and out again at home. And all when I was an emotional wreck. It just felt impossible. Pain. Many of you, I'm sure, have experienced a broken heart at some point and will know that with this actually comes physical pain. Deep down inside, I was in constant pain. Sometimes I thought I was going to be physically sick. And when I cried at night, it would well up until it felt as if it would consume me. I wanted the pain to stop. I wanted to put an end to it all. Sometimes I really did want to die so I'd be released from the agony I was in. All these thoughts were tumbling around my head constantly, day and night. I was sure I was going mad, but I couldn't turn it off and I couldn't flip the switch in my brain to stop it. In a room full of people, even with my good friends, I felt exposed, like as if a layer of skin had been peeled away and I'd been left raw and vulnerable. I didn't sleep properly for three or four years couldn't eat properly for over a year. 
though it's definitely the most effective diet I've ever been on, but I couldn't even enjoy being skinny because I didn't enjoy anything anymore. It seemed as if I'd never laugh or never feel happy again. But there was one more emotion lurking under all the rubbish. Hope. That may sound odd, but in all the madness, I had hope. I believed God could do anything so he could bring James home, and I knew that he wanted me to believe for that to happen. And even if it didn't happen, I had the hope that one day I would be okay again. I had to hold on to this. God promises to take care of us, so he had to look after me, otherwise he'd be a liar, wouldn't he? So, this is the part where I tell you that everything turned out well. James came to realise he'd made a huge mistake. We worked through our issues. God answered my prayers with a miracle and we lived happily ever after. Unfortunately, this isn't the Disney version. And although I truly believe that that could have been the outcome, the reality has been very different. Three years after James left, he was still adamant that he wasn't coming home. I was desperate for him to come back and still loved him, but it was making me ill and I couldn't carry on. Struggling with guilt and after much soul searching and prayer, I decided to file for divorce. The Lord showed me that I'd done everything he'd asked of me, but that each person has free will, which God will not cross. James had made his choices. I had given him every opportunity to change his mind, but he wasn't coming home. I was free to walk away, and although it made me incredibly sad, it was also a relief to be drawing a line under it all. This month would have been our 20th wedding anniversary. Instead, I've been a single mum for 13 years. James and I have both worked hard at making the situation as easy as possible for the girls, and he's still very much their dad and part of their lives. Now we can get on with each other up to a point, but it's been a very bumpy road to travel. I never thought I'd spend my 30s raising three children on my own, and yes, there are loads of things I miss about being part of a couple. I miss feeling part of a team, knowing that that I am someone else's priority and that they are mine. I miss the intimacy of sharing day-to-day -day life with someone, the cooking, ferrying around the girls, sorting the finances, talking about the day at work. And I miss the certainty of a life planned together, knowing in the future, wherever that leads, someone will be there next to me. Also, anyone who has teenagers knows just how exhausting they can be. With three daughters, I have definitely had my hands full at times, Whilst they've given me plenty of opportunity to work on developing patience and exercising forgiveness, they've absolutely been my reason to carry on. As they grow into beautiful young women, I could not be prouder of them, and I thank God that he has blessed me with three amazing, strong, intelligent, and at times, feisty daughters. As I hurtle towards my 40th birthday, life looks nothing like I had imagined it would at this point. Some days, it's still a struggle to hold in check feelings of resentment and bitterness at how life has panned out, especially when pressures of finances and time can feel overwhelming. But to use an old cliche, time has been a great healer, and God has most definitely looked after me and my girls through the last 13 years. We've had some great times and created lots of happy memories together, and life keeps on surprising. Just a few weeks ago, I started a three-year degree in history at Nottingham Trent Uni, the next terrifying and exhilarating chapter in a journey where only my end destination is certain. I've got three beautiful daughters, my own home, a job I love, and an exciting new challenge. I'm part of a fantastic church and surrounded with amazing friends and family whom I love dearly and I know love me. My heartfelt thanks goes to them because I wouldn't have made it without them.
And after all this, has my experience of a divorce put me off marriage? Definitely not. I still believe in marriage and the vital role it plays both in the church and society. Would I like to be married again? Yes, at some point. So, Lord, you know, that six foot two rugby player who likes cooking and is good at DIY, I'm ready. <laughs> and so to finish, in the words of that great disco diva, Gloria Gaynor, weren't you the one who tried to hurt me with goodbye? Do you think I'd crumble? Do you think I'd lay down and die? Oh no, not I, I will survive. As long as I know how to love, I know I'll stay alive. And I've got all my life to live, and I've got all my love to give, and I'll survive. I will survive, and I have. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. And last but not least, please welcome Hettel. So I grew up in a middle-class Hindu household with a mum, a dad, and two brothers. From an outsider's perspective, our family looked idyllic. My parents were both in good professions. My brothers and I were achieving high grades at top schools. We went as a family to all the festivals and events and laughed and smiled with those around us. My experience of my childhood, however, was far from idyllic. Love was conditional based on meeting my parents' needs and expectations, and this perfect child they wanted me to be was impossible to achieve. As a result, my mum only spoke to criticise, swear and shout at me. I was frequently told I wasn't good enough and shown it through repeated acts of physical and sexual abuse. My dad, on the other hand, was passive, withholding any love and praise, only speaking on the odd occasion to belittle me. And to add to the equation, their marriage was unstable, littered with loud arguments and affairs. It was an incredibly painful and lonely period of time. I distinctly remember that as a child, the only thing getting me through the day was the time that I would have before falling asleep, where I would daydream about being rescued, someone who could save me. As a result of this childhood, I grew up believing all these lies that were stopping me being the person I was meant to be. I struggled a lot with my mental health, suffering from an eating disorder and depression, and attempted suicide after a bad incident of abuse in my college years. But somehow, despite all this, I managed to get the grades I needed to study medicine at university in Nottingham, where I hoped my new life would begin. Life at university improved as I finally had the freedom and independence I'd longed for. I made friends, worked hard, and went out like all the other medical students, but secretly continued to struggle with my mental health. I managed to keep it together till Christmas of second year, when one of my best friends passed away from an eating disorder. The news tipped me over the edge. I thought the world was too cruel and I couldn't be bothered to continue battling it every day as life was so meaningless. And it was during this time that I had a casual conversation with a friend about church who offered to take me. I would have described myself as an atheist at the time, despite my Hindu upbringing, and as I didn't think that Christians still existed, I said yes, mainly out of shock. <laughs> and this started a fast-paced journey of discovering who God was. From conversations with others and the Bible, I learned about the character of Jesus, his all-loving, forgiving, and compassionate nature. I looked into the evidence behind the resurrection and was surprised by its credibility, which encouraged me to come back to church. The services intrigued me, and each and every time I left with a doubt, I seemed to meet and chat to a person who had answers to my questions. It's amazing to look back and see how God pursued me at this time. It wasn't until I went to Momentum, a Christian festival, that I started to believe. I learned more about Jesus' loving and healing nature, and after prayer from friends, I felt released to grieve over my past. At one of the evening services, the raw and painful emotions I'd been feeling came to a peak, and I found myself weeping uncontrollably. 
It was then that the lady on the stage said that tonight some people in the room would experience joy like they've never done before. And with those words, without even one thought crossing my mind, my grieving turned into joy. And a joy like no other, a joy that made me dance, laugh and sing. And at the end of the service, I realized that the Holy Spirit had planted inside me a tiny seed of faith. I believed. So with panda eyes and tired eggs, legs, I started a walk with Jesus. The first few months of being a Christian were challenging, as I put pressure on myself to follow all the supposed rules, but was doing a terrible job at it and left feeling isolated and burdened. I quickly realized that I'd got the wrong end of the stick and that it wasn't about God's rules, but God's grace. The cross and Jesus' resurrection became real to me and I began to walk in, walk in its reality. God's grace meant that there was nothing I could do to make God love me more and nothing I could do to make God love me less. I'd seen nothing like it before, growing up in a house where love was conditional, having friendships based on an exchange, and growing up in a society that tried to convince me that the burden was on me to prove that I was worthy of being loved, whether it be through good looks, status, or popularity. So this was something I'd never experienced before. God saw beyond the mask I put on and still wanted to get to know me, to come closer to me, to love me. His love for me wasn't based on what I'd done, but on who he was. And what a relief. God's grace meant that I didn't have to always get it right. I didn't have to be perfect. I didn't have to do anything or not do something to earn his love. Jesus had already earned the costly victory for me of God's acceptance, infinite love and favor. I finally had the freedom to be myself, bearing all my wounds, hopes and failings. And I could be at peace knowing that not only were the father's arms wide open, he was running towards me. My third year of university was quite difficult. I'd been diagnosed with a couple of chronic bowel conditions and was finding the ongoing symptoms debilitating. And I was in this midst of this rapid healing process that was releasing suppressed emotions whilst trying to be on placement and pass medical exams. So in his grace and love, I felt called to do the discipleship year, which was an exciting but scary prospect. So if I was gonna take a year out, I had to tell my parents what I was going to do. And I was terrified. In the past year, there were repeated times when it was so obvious that God was protecting me from my parents finding out I was a Christian. So in my head, I'd formulated this great idea that I wasn't gonna tell them until I got married. I entertained images of me blindfolding my parents, leading them down the aisle and tying them to a chair, <laughs> fooling them to come to my wedding in a church and not a temple. Um, yeah, but God had a different, more realistic plan, so I put my trust in him. I told my parents that I was a Christian and that I was taking a year out to serve the church and as expected, they didn't take it very well and they didn't talk to me for quite a few months and when they did talk to me, it wasn't very pleasant. But through this time, God showed me his faithfulness. He protected me in his arms of infinite love and gave me just what I needed to get through each day. He surrounded me with a family within the church to support and encourage me when I lost hope. And whenever I cried out to him, whenever I called on his name, he gently reassured me of my identity as his daughter, allowing me to feel more safe and secure than I ever did before. I never once regretted the year. God molded me and released passions I never knew I had, filling me with such excitement for my future. He helped me process my past and brought me to a place of love and respect for my parents. And during this time, I learned that God was more than I could ever need. That even in the throes of life, even in times of, in times of deep pain, that he would provide and sustain me. Through various pictures and words God's given me, through times of prayer and through the unconditional love and support I've received from this church, God's done an incredible work of healing in my life. 
Healing, healing so immense and transformational that I found it strange writing the first half of this story because I don't recognize the girl I wrote of. I look back now at my past and I see God's hand of protection over me, even in the darkest times. He was with me then as he is with me now. And I've seen him equip me to use each suffering to reach out to others, to bring love and transformation to their lives too. So in the past few months, I've realized that I've made my peace with suffering, being a reality of the world we live in at this present time. I've seen enough of God's redemptive nature in my life, and I've seen him bring me through enough moments of darkness to trust that he's working in all of our circumstances for our good and his greater good. One of my favorite authors, Henry Nguyen, writes, when joy and pain are both opportunities to say yes to our divine childhood, they are more alike than they are different. When feeling lonely and feeling at home both hold a call to discover more fully the God whose children we are, these feelings are more united than distinct. And it's taken me a while to get there, but I think I get him now. The difficulties of my life aren't unbearable if I look at them through faith rather than unbelief. With faith, looking at the bigger picture, I see God shining in all his glory in all of my life circumstances. And with faith, I'm assured that there is peace beyond anguish, life beyond death, and hope beyond, hope beyond despair. But don't get me wrong, I'm still affected by all the emotions that life brings. In fact, I seem to be in a season where there's a battle on every corner. My medical degree is tough, my health's not good, and relationships have been shaken. But through the struggles and tears, there's contentment, peace with my soul, and a joy that sustains me. As long as I keep my eyes fixed on him, the world grows dim in the light of his glory and grace. And here's an update for you all. So my mum rang me a couple of weeks ago and asked me if I knew what the fifth commandment was. And I didn't, off the top of my head, because, you know, I never went to Sunday school. Um, <laughs> and for those of you that don't know, it's honour your father and mother. And although it's a bit strange that she asked me this, I couldn't help but grin when she said it, because it means, in a roundabout way, she's accepted I'm a Christian, and it means that she's looking into the Bible, which is really awesome. Um, and I wanted to stop her just then and be like, no, I don't know that commandment, but have you met Jesus of the Gospels? Let me read to you. <laughs> but um, I didn't do that. But it's just so exciting. It's such an amazing step in the right direction. So if you can all pray for her and my family, it will just be amazing to see what God can do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So encouraging. Shall we, shall we stand?